Hey, from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by conservative Republican attorney Judith Sherwin, Democrat socialist Anthony Joel Quesada, and from KTSM Radio in El Paso, Texas, Andrew Polk, and Steph Kite, who is with Axios, a reporter who's given us a recent story on what's happening with immigration as it relates to what the Biden administration is doing primarily uh, in the country of Guatemala. Nice to have you with us this evening. Phone lines open. 1-800-723-8289, our program tonight. Tonight's a little, a little bit uh, unique in that I am uh, also uh, not in the studio tonight. So everybody's on Zoom tonight, so hopefully we'll have a good, lively discussion. But I want to begin with uh, Anthony Joel Casada. And Anthony, thank you very much for being with us. And if you're a longtime listener to this program, uh, we would turn back the clock probably about seven or eight years ago. And you were a guest on this program when you were 20 years old. You were barely out of high school. Uh, you were a very good uh, conversationalist that night. And uh, you are now uh, running unopposed for the Cook County Board. The Cook County is one of the largest counties in the United States. And certainly, uh, uh, Anthony will soon be part of that governing body. And uh, he was many years ago a Democrat, so Democratic Socialist. And he appears tonight in that role. And also, we'll hear from Judith Sherwin. Uh, this evening, but I, I want to begin on the subject of uh, immigration, not, not illegal immigration, but I want to focus on asylum, mm -hmm. um, because that's the issue that the country is dealing with now, in addition to illegal immigration. Uh, my recollection of many years ago, uh, Anthony, was you thought that we should have complete open borders, and anybody, anybody in the world that wants to come here, uh, they should be welcomed. Uh, you've got you know, a few years, you know, under your skin now, right now. Um, what do you think? Is that still the case? Open borders for everybody? Well, I think we need to have, and, and thank you so much, Bruce, for having me on the show again. It's such a such a joy to be here, uh, to be with you and with Judith and everyone listening. Um, my opinion is that, you know, we need a humane and compassionate migration system, right? I think what we're seeing right now is the difficulties infrastructurally, right, in terms socially, um, that it is very difficult for people who are just trying to find stability in their lives um, to find it, right? And I think um, we have a very outdated migration system in our country, and I think we need to be a compassionate partner in the Western Hemisphere and around the world uh, for allowing people who need a safe passage to a brighter future. Um, and I think you know the United States has, has a role to play in that. Judith Sherwin, your reaction to the same question, uh, how... Uh... How many more can we accept here in the United States? Well, I don't know how many more we can accept in the United States. I mean, it's a big country, and I, I understand that. But the immigration system uh, that we have is is very complicated, and it's based on a, a whole panorama of laws and legal rules. There's a very clear uh, ruling about asylum. Who gets asylum? Under what conditions they get asylum? And over the last several years, we have seen an expansion of the idea of asylum for pretty much anybody who wants to come here and claim that there's crime in their country, or they have a gang that's chasing them, or there's some other 
criminal problem that makes them want to come to the United States. The problem is that when they come to the United States, very often they bring the criminal problem with them. Um, and, and so they're not really getting asylum in the United States. They're creating a situation in the United States which isn't helpful for them and certainly isn't helpful now, when you us. say they bring the criminal problem are you saying then that they are criminals i mean what, no no i'm not we're not bringing I, criminals no i what i'm saying is they get here through coyotes they get through here through various legal means they get here being beholden to gangs and cartels and when they come here that doesn't end when they get across the border so there's a, a number of problems that have gone with these claims for asylum. And, and we have taken the definition of asylum and the rules relating to asylum uh, and expanded them beyond the point where they just were never meant to be. Let me ask Anthony. Anthony, can you draw a, a line or difference between uh, those that are coming here illegally and those that are coming here through uh, an asylum asylum program, as it relates to the role of the uh, of the smugglers. I mean, mm -hmm. are, the, are the smugglers working with both populations of people, or are they focused on one or the other? Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an expert. I can't uh, fully uh, hash that up, but I would imagine it's a combination of things, right? This is a very complicated humanitarian crisis that we're dealing with. But for the most part, majority of the people that we're seeing coming into our country are people who are seeking asylum, who are seeking refuge, who are seeking stability and predictability in their lives. Uh, there are individuals, their children, their families uh, who are fleeing danger, poverty, uh, persecution, and ultimately at the end of the day are exercising you know, their human right uh, and legal right to seek safety in the United States. Um, and so I think that's the, the main crux of the situation. I've actually had the opportunity to meet some of these um, asylum seekers in uh, one of the Cook County uh, clinics uh, in Belmont Cragen. And a majority of the people who uh, were being um, attended to medically were, were children and were mothers. Um, so yes, you know, of course there are gonna be situations where an undesirable person or somebody who does not wanna follow the rules uh, is gonna you know, come through the system. But we, I think we, we should not be painting a very broad brush to a very complicated humanitarian situation. It's, it's, it's one of the issues here, because when I read the reasons for coming to the United States, obviously crime and living uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that's infested with crimes and gangs, uh, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm a parent, I, I want to get rid of that. But yet, we live in the city of Chicago. We read mm -hmm. stories about that all the time. And how does, how does that mother and that family trying to seek a better life how does that differ from someone on the south or west side of Chicago who's living in the exact same conditions mm -hmm. and they only they have no place to go and they're not getting assistance from the federal government in trying to make their life better? Right. If, if I could respond a little bit to that, Bruce. I mean, Anthony, it seems to believe that there is a legal right for non-citizens to come to the United States to gain refuge under pretty much any circumstance. And that is not what the asylum laws provide. And I agree with you. Where does the family on the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago go when pretty much where do any of us go when the streets are being shot up by gangs who are running around the city with impunity and doing drive-by shootings and various other bad things? So 
there is there is a legal system for asylum. There's no question about it. It should be followed, but it is first of all overwhelmed because there are many people seeking asylum who really do not fit the definition of asylum seekers. Okay. When we come back, we'll talk it, about that. It's business as it used to be that. when it was just a political issue. 823 coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. this place gave me. We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oak Brook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life. Matthew. Oh, oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. 
Mr. Monbeck, we continue 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. And uh, I, I want to go back to trying to separate those that are, and I've described them as sneaking into the country uh, and being apprehended by Border Patrol. And those that we're discussing right now that are being shipped to cities around the United States, some of whom are not being welcomed in those cities, in many cities they are welcomed. And those are people who are seeking political asylum. Now, those people, there has been a brief adjudication at the border, accepting that they want to become uh, citizens, not, not citizens, but they want to be uh, assignees. And, and then they're given a, a court date where they have to show up, and usually it's several years later. And one of the criticisms is that a lot of the people who get adjudicated at the border, they just slide into the system, they slide into the United States, and they never show up for their final uh, uh, legal uh, you know, proceeding. And, and Anthony, I want you, if you will, to acknowledge in your view whether that's true or not, so that people who are fearful that people are, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a different form of sneaking into the country, but in essence, uh, they are because they're violating a law by not showing up for their court date. So if someone is going through this process, which again is a very complicated process, I know that there are people who come into our, uh, our country right now, many asylum seekers, right? They're falling through the cracks or, you know, they were given from one government institution to another, um, but are now trying to, you know, find their way throughout our city. Again, very complicated situation. Um, I think the first and foremost perspective that we need to have as a society and within our government systems is compassion and understanding. And I really wish, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that governors DeSantis and Governor Abbott are using this uh, humanitarian crisis as a political stunt rather than actually reaching out to different administrations, federal, state, local, to figure out how we address this issue compassionately. Just, let, me, let me just, um, how does what uh, those governors are doing, uh, how does it differ from having uh, large groups of them? This, we, this has been in the news for several months now, mm -hmm. that people would be at the border, and, and U.S. Border Customs Patrol, uh, they would, in the middle of the night, they would be sent. They would be putting on people on planes in Texas, and they would be sending them to cities all over the United States. There was no reporting that I can recall whether all of those cities knew that everybody was coming. They didn't have a manifest that everybody was coming. I don't believe. At least that's not been reported. Uh, but how does that differ from what the Republican governors are doing? They're basically saying we're going to send you to a different city as well. And we're going to we're going to send you to a city that we know welcomes you because yeah. their mayors are pro sanctuary. I, I think it's I think the the crux of the problem right now is the quantity. And I think the lack of cooperation, you know, between these government agencies and administrations is what is creating, uh, you know, a capacity issue. Right. Because we're talking about housing. We're talking about healthcare, We're talking about casework and management. Um, that's a lot of work behind the scenes that bureaucrats and uh, people. But how do we know? How do we know that this really isn't happening? Well, yeah. So so if you if you look at what's going on and what people 
for instance, in Texas, I, I saw a woman on the internet today from El Paso who was talking about what goes on in El Paso because of hundreds of thousands of people coming across the border, some of them seeking asylum and some of them doing what you mentioned, sneaking into the country. But once they're here, you let's take care of them. You've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of children, you've got all kinds of issues with respect to their health, with respect to where they can live. And, and so the, the state of Texas and the state of Arizona, and apparently Florida as well, are overwhelmed with this. They, they are having a serious problem. They're getting no help from the federal government at all. And, and the cities and the states are trying to deal with them, you know, just because they happen to be physically located at the border. Excuse me, let, let me finish. Doesn't mean you should okay. be just dumping them there. And so I think that what Governor Abbott and, and Governor DeSantis wanted to do was to point out to governors and mayors in other cities. I mean, Martha's Vineyard had a call in the National Guard and removed 50 people there's a thousand times 50 people coming in every day to border towns in Texas and in Florida and in Arizona. How do you expect those places to deal with them in addition to the people that they already have? That's a, that's a very good, it's a very good, simple question. It, it's about government's capacity to handle uh, something that's been dumped on their lap. Anthony, what's your, what's your answer to that question? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a it's it's an administrative question of how, right. how you deal with them all. Again, I think that's where we need to have collaboration between all single levels of government, and I think also internationally as well. You know, I think first we need to identify what is the origin of these problems between the humanitarian crisis that is taking place in Central and South America, and I think first and foremost, it's failed American foreign policy that has destabilized these countries, right? That has literally led coup d'etats against these countries or has sent corporations to exploit and manipulate these countries' economies and their social structures. So first off, one, this is the result of failed American foreign policy and a neoliberal economic model of government where you have people in the, the, the Trump administration was supporting uh, the coup d'etat that took place in Bolivia just a couple of years ago with the explicit focus to take over their lithium deposits, right? But this is what's happening. What one moment, one moment, Bruce. This is what's happened. One moment, Judith. This is what has happened in Venezuela. This is what happens with Cuba, with embargoes that impact these nations' resources. So I think one first and foremost, we need to adopt a new progressive form of foreign policy where we're working with these countries to address the social issues that are impacting them. Well, when we start while we're, you know, this, this blame America thing. But while we're attempting, while we're attempting, go ahead, Judith. Yeah, I mean, look, you can't blame what's going on now, A, on the Trump administration, because whatever's been going on with South America has been going on with South America for a couple of hundred years. This is not a new problem, number one. Right. Number two, the, you can't say that whatever goes on in these countries, the corruption, the crime, the bad, the bad policies, mm -hmm. Venezuela now is, is our fault. That's really very interesting. I didn't, I didn't this say is, that. This, well, you added it to Donald Trump's list of things that are his fault. So I guess it's his I said fault. Bolivia. 
well, Bolivia, you also added Venezuela. Venezuela is not the fault of the United States. Bolivia is also probably not the fault of the United States. Those countries have internal issues. Mm -hmm. There are coup d'etats that happen down there all the time. They are they are corrupt. So they what have about problems. the American wait, wait. Judith, Judith, let me ask you, this. Judith, the question to you, yeah. do we have a responsibility as a government and as citizens of the United States, do we have a responsibility to clean up Guatemala, Honduras, Haiti, and all the other countries? Absolutely uh, that are, not. That are, Oh, I mean, why, why, why do we have a responsibility with Afghanistan and Iraq? How is it that because when, when, when American Iraq interests, were, when American interests are, Afghanistan, are, are, are at hand, we must Afghanistan, you asked a question. Let me let me answer. Uh, Afghanistan, yeah, Afghanistan, we had a responsibility for, mm. not a responsibility. We had people in Afghanistan who are making war in the United States. Okay, mm -hmm. now the war in Afghanistan went on way too long, but you had people in Afghanistan making war in the United States. You have people in other countries in the Middle East who want to make war in the United States. You had ISIS who wanted to make war in the United States and wanted to bring that war to the United States. So the United States had a national security problem that it had to deal with. The last I looked, we don't have anybody in South America who wants to make war on the United States we have is a lot of people in South America who want to come here to participate in the American dream. And quite frankly, I'd be happy to have them come here legally, properly, and not all at one time where we can't integrate them and we can't but, bring but again, them into uh, the system. Okay. So just a second, legal, legally and properly is through the asylum process. So not the necessarily. That that, with, I mean, the, people, the people that we're dealing with now, let me just finish. The people that we're dealing with now who've gone to New York and Los Angeles and, or New York and Washington and Chicago and, and also uh, to Martha's Vineyard, they're following their process. They're following a legal process. But what we also have, uh, Anthony, and I want to get your reaction. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it uh, for a little bit uh, later because we're going to a break pretty soon. But basically, I, I want to get a reaction from you because you're, you're an upcoming leader in the city of Chicago. People around the country know that uh, Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, has made a big point about Chicago being a sanctuary city and being a welcoming city. And yet when 500 uh, uh, you know, visitors from Texas uh, come to Chicago, she sends them out to the suburbs. I mean, she what's the decision? Chicago so, really is not welcoming them. She wants she wants to dump them off on the on the on the Republican mayors in the suburban yeah, area. And, 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 and Governor Pritzker and Governor Pritzker. That's okay. sure. Nobody talks except no, not even me. Commercials coming up. <laughs> okay. Bye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? 
Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So talk, hey, you can do it if you try. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Just a month back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much. A little bit later on in the broadcast, we're going to be joined by Anthony Polk. He's a veteran talk show host from KTSM in El Paso, Texas. We're going to be talking about how the city of El Paso has tried to deal with this issue, which is now uh, other cities around the country are dealing with. So he will be with us uh, for uh, shortly after uh, the uh, 7 o'clock break or halfway break, uh, whatever the time frame is when you're hearing this program. And then later on, we're going to have a reporter from Axios on, and she has done reporting on, on the, the current policy, the current Biden administration policy, and what's being done in the country of Guatemala. There's action down there working with those from Guatemala to try to deal with the problem on site. And there hasn't been a lot of reporting on that, but uh, we will hear from her as the program unfolds. That's in the second hour tonight 
on Beyond the Beltway. We have Judith Sherwin, we have Anthony Posada, who are with us this evening. They are on different sides of a variety of issues. Uh, one is a democratic socialist, and uh, Anthony, uh, take a moment to give everybody a little more background information on you and how you got here tonight. Sure, thank you, Bruce. Um, so yes, uh, I am a lifelong Chicagoan, born and raised on the Northwest side in Logan Square. I'm the son of immigrant parents from Mexico and Costa Rica. Um, I have been a community organizer for about six, seven years, uh, working to address issues in our community like displacement and poverty, um, as well as immigration uh, work. Um, in June of 20, June 28th of this year, I won my election uh, to serve as the Democratic nominee for Cook County Commissioner of the 8th District. And uh, on December 5th, I will be inaugurated as the youngest Cook County Commissioner in county history. Uh, and uh, the first Costa Rican elected in the state of Illinois, which I'm very proud of. And the 8th District has about 300,000 residents and has about uh, 13 neighborhoods, which includes uh, Logan Square, Avondale, Humble Park, Irving Park, Bummer Reagan, and many, many others. And you're also a Democratic Ward Committeeman, so you're part of the Democratic structure. So uh, I was elected a Democratic Committeeman of the 35th Ward in 2020, but I actually have uh, retired that position. And so uh, the Alderman of the 35th Ward is now the, the Democratic Committeeman. Okay, um, so I wanted to focus power, on you, that, you, 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 And again, br briefly describe for those around the country, what does a county commissioner do in, 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 in basically uh, you know, this county, probably hmm. similar to counties around the, the country? They may know what a yeah, so federal level is doing. Cook County is one of the largest counties in the United States. Uh, a county board commissioner serves on the Cook County Board of Commissioners, which is a 17-member legislative uh, body. Uh, the Cook County Board President is Tony Preckwinkle. As the legislative and governing body of Cook County, we oversee an $8.5 billion budget that includes funding for our Cook County Hospital and Health System, uh, the Cook County Jails, the Cook County Forest Preserves, uh, and so many other uh, amazing resources and uh, services that people rely on day in and day out. Judith Sherwin, tell us about your background. So I'm an attorney. Um, I uh, have practiced law in Chicago for about 40 years. Uh, I also uh, teach in the law school at uh, Loyola in Chicago. Uh, I teach in the area of business ethics and occasionally in constitutional law. And um, I uh, really enjoy coming on this show because uh, it's a broad-ranging topic, and uh, I get to talk a lot about how I feel about what's going on in the country today. What is uh, what is your answer to the question of what cities around the United States should be doing to help the governors of Arizona and Texas out during the situation? Because obviously, uh, a lot of them have said we're sanctuary cities. And then when you send people there, they get all upset or they try to react. I mean, in, in Chicago, granted, uh, the, the uh, those and many of those that came to Chicago were from Venezuela. Uh, they ended up in suburban areas, Elk Grove Village, which is where this program originally from, from originally, and Orland Park. So they end up there uh, and they go into a hotel. But there's all kinds of things that they get once they get there benefits they get they get health care well get... right and and so the question is who bears the burden of all of that okay yes. um so what do i what do i think should be done well first of all if if a city in the united states has declared itself to be a sanctuary city 
okay? And the city of Chicago has done that uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, they won't cooperate with ICE. Um, you know, they've proclaimed over and over again, they're welcoming, uh, you know, nobody is illegal. They are welcoming people from any other country who wants to come here. And, and um, so they need to, if they're going to be a sanctuary, they need to be a sanctuary. They need to figure out a way to provide health services. They need to find a way to provide housing. And, and I realize that the city of Chicago has its own problems. I mean, we have tent cities in the parks and the city can't seem to deal with them. We have crime problems and the city can't seem to deal with them. We have a Cook County State's Attorney, by the way. I hope you can deal with her at some point, Anthony, who doesn't seem to think it's okay to enforce the law. And it's about to get worse when the Safety Act is passed after January 1st. So I think there needs to be a redirection of resources to take care of these people, all right? Um, but not to the denigration yeah, but, 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 of the resources yeah, this, this that need to be, case, it goes, be used it goes, for the Anthony, people already living here. Well, Anthony, was did you see anything wrong with sending uh, those to uh, to the suburbs? And again, some of the suburbs said that the city never gave them advance warning, just like the city has said that Governor Abbott has never given them a warning. Is, so, that, is, that, is that your understanding of what happened here? That, that Lori Why do they have to give them a warning? Lightning had a big mouth, but she didn't... Uh, she wasn't ready to go. So, so from what I understand, um, the government or the municipality of Countryside has said that um, that no that their their mayor or their city administration was not notified from the states, right, from Texas, that they were being bused to their community. So mm -hmm. one, I think it's coming from the state of Texas, not from the city of Chicago. Because in you can actually go to Countryside's website, and it literally talks about how none of them were uh, notified that they were coming for, to their community. Um, it also talks about how the city of Countryside is working with uh, the Illinois Department of Human Services and the Cook County government. Were they, to were they told by the city? Were they told? Were they told by the city of Chicago? Because again, no. if, if if anyone around the country is listening to this and and they hear it, they they've heard about Lori Lightfoot. And, and the fact that we're a sanctuary city, mm -hmm. uh, if, if 500 people, mostly from Venezuela in this particular, if they're coming here, why can't she find a place for them within yeah. the bounds of Chicago? So, I mean, the, so the, the I, governor of Illinois, who is also has, has a huge mouth on this issue, mm -hmm. he, he is the heir to the Hilton Hotels. Why, yeah. aren't these people staying, exactly. why aren't these people staying at the mm -hmm. Hyatt Regency downtown? Bruce, right. Because, because they... they they're well, because there, if they're them. staying at the Hyatt Regency downtown, nobody else is going to stay there. So Look, five hundred. Let me finish. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one, our city and our country has a lot more work to do to advocate for housing as a human right. I think we have a lot more resources. Um, that need to be invested in creating here's, here's one, one, one moment first. No, but no, I want to ask no, no I want to ask, ask I want to ask you a follow-up. My point is this. You know, one of the things that, that hopefully you will bring to politics is that if a politician says something, they mm -hmm. mean it and they do something about it. So if you've right. got a Democratic governor and you've got a right. mayor and, of the city of Chicago and, saying that we're a welcoming sanctuary city, 
and then you're sending right. people to some so, other place. Okay. You're like a you're like a you're, you're a phony. Okay, Bruce. Phony. One moment. One moment. I, if you don't know, because it sounds like you don't know, the state of Illinois has done more than any other state to put resources and housing folks in hotels, providing resources and case management than any other state in the entire country. The How do we know that? Is work yeah, where, where, is that, where does that come from? I mean, so, seriously, I haven't I, heard Judith, that either. Excuse me. I, uh -huh. am in, I am in collaboration and in coalition with Northwest Side elected officials like Congresswoman, our incoming Congresswoman Delia Ramirez, our state Senator uh, Christina Pasiones-Zayas, our incoming state representative Lillian Jimenez, and a number of aldermen on the Northwest Side who are working with the Illinois Department of Human Services, with the Chicago Department of Family Support, Support Services, with Rincon Services, and Catholic Charities. Okay, then why has because, the governor declared, uh -huh. wait a minute, the governor has declared a state of emergency. Right. So that's over so 500 people. Right. You mean so to tell me that all that coordination that you are involved in can't handle 500 people in the city of Chicago in a hotel in Chicago where they could get right. the services so, that you're Judith, talking about and we have to send them Judith, out of the city with the National Guard. Judith, it's Come about on. capacity, Judith. How about you have some compassion? Five hundred people, people. Yes, five hundred. Do you people. have you ever have addressing? Have you ever worked to address people who are experiencing severe amount of poverty? People who need healthcare. Actually, services, actually, I have. Services? Okay, have you done actually, it as an influx of five hundred people? To, Bruce can also, tell you. Bruce can tell you. To, just a minute. A, Bruce can tell you about my radical right. past. Yes, I have worked. And, right. and nobody wants to take care of these people. They want to use them as a political football. And that is what they want. All right. Judith, 500 Judith, people. I... You can't take. No, no. I'm sorry, Anthony. You should be more outraged than me. Why can't the city of Chicago take care so of five? But you are assuming people. that I'm here defending Lori Lightfoot and and no. JD Pritzker. Do do you folks not understand what a democratic socialist means? It means I hold those people accountable to making sure that we are investing in our community. I know what a democratic socialist means. Okay, that's not what it means. Folks, we have a pause. Is that a pause? That's certainly one more segment coming up. this space gave me. We have never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom, having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oak Brook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life.
No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening. And they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Mr. Mark back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. Judith Sherwin and Anthony Quisada join us. And uh, by the way, just a little historical figure. Uh, uh, Anthony, uh, you should know that many years ago, I mean, over 50 years ago, when Judith Sherwin and I first met, uh, she was a young, radical, uh, George McGovern, Democrat, anti-war. Uh, she comes out of a very left, progressive background. Uh, she has evolved, obviously, over the years and a conservative Republican, but she... Uh, uh, she was pretty close to your politics way back when, uh, so we, we continued the conversation. I, I want to deal right now with what, what do what do we do next? Because you're running as a as a democratic socialist, uh, Anthony. Uh, you said in the last segment that you know you're not here to defend Lori Lightfoot or Governor Pritzker. You would like to see them doing more. Uh, we should mention for those around the country there are uh, there are several members of the democratic socialists who are members of the Chicago City Council, uh, you will be the, the, the one of the first, if not the first, on the county board. So what sort of a city do you want? What, what are the improvements that a democratic socialist would bring to Chicago and Cook County? I think we need to have a fully funded public health care system. I think we need to make sure that we are addressing the public multiple uh, public health crises that are impacting our communities. And I think we saw um, a huge deficiencies of our public health care system during uh, the COVID crisis. You know, we don't have enough healthcare workers. We don't have enough uh, neighborhood health clinics. I think we also have a housing crisis, right? We don't have enough affordable housing. 
We are seeing property taxes increase. We are seeing a homeless crisis, right? So I think we need to have real legislative and policy solutions to making sure that we're investing in homeless services, that we're investing in social services, that we're investing in healthcare, that we're also addressing food how much, but, uh, Anthony, how much does this cost, okay? Because of the people mm -hmm. in, the, in the district that you would like to represent, there are those that are listening tonight cheering your every word because they feel that society should do more. There's a lot of people in this country that think society should do more. And yet there's another large population out there that says we're doing too much or I'd like to help more. But where does it come from? Where does the money come yeah. from? Yeah. And what I go through I mean, when you say, you know, helping, you know, uh, you know, the health care crisis. What are you talking about? And where does the money come from? Yeah. So, you know, for the past 50 years, we've seen a horrible uh, deployment of uh, public policy that has put balanced the uh, budgets of our city budget, our county budget, our state budget, our federal budgets off the backs of middle class and working class families through uh, right commercial taxes, through um, uh, property taxes. Um, I think what we need to see is re, uh, redistribution of wealth, which is for the past 40 years, gone from the bottom half of our society to the top 1%. And I think we need to reverse that. We need to so tax the more, richest individuals how, how and the more, wealthiest. How much more do you think you can yeah. redistribute? I mean, we, we haven't redistributed anything, Judith. Actually, there's gone redistribution from the bottom to the top. And there needs to be a redistribution from the top to the bottom. Um, and I so, mean, how do you propose to do that? I, I mean, you have a tax system in this country that does redistribute the wealth. You have a number of laws in this country that redistributes the wealth. You have a number of mechanisms in place already in this country that redistribute the wealth. And I'd like to know what else, you know, it's, it's, I understand what you want to do. I really do. And, and it, it, it makes sense to me. And, and I think that what Governor Pritzker has done with respect to these 500 people from Venezuela is atrocious. I think that what Lori Lightfoot has done is atrocious to take these people and number one, just dump them somewhere, okay, in a place where they are probably not gonna get the services that they need to get and the state is not gonna participate in helping them. But redistributing the wealth is not the answer to the problem. These people came here because they're looking, if I assume, they came here because they're looking to participate in the American dream, which at one time meant mm -hmm. come here, be able to raise your family, have a job, you know, have a reasonable life, uh, free from crime, free from poverty, free from a whole bunch of things that you and I would both like to see people free from. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're not on the opposite side of this issue. The question is, how do we get there? Right. And the way we get there is not to, ignore the problem and to pretend well the problem is down in texas so i'm not going to pay any attention to that i'm going to stand up here in chicago and i'm going to pontificate and virtue signal about what a welcoming sanctuary city i have when in fact it is not welcoming at all it is not a sanctuary for anybody and it is not interested in doing anything for anybody except getting them out of town okay so so why, why do you think that that's I don't what I believe, see, though? I, You're making Eric, assumptions. Anthony. Well, you know, I don't think you, no, I don't think you believe that. But what I think, I think what you are underplaying or maybe not expressing enough or 
don't have concrete solutions to is what do we do about these problems? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll just mention just one, the tent cities all over the city. Mm -hmm. All right. The people living in those tent cities and in, and in many tent cities throughout the country are people who have mental problems. They're not all criminals. They have mental problems. They have monetary problems, but a, a huge portion of them are people with mental illness. Right. Why are they living on the street? They are living on the street because of the policies of both Republican, pardon the expression, and Democratic politicians mm -hmm. right. taking a long solution and saying, let's close all the institutions and put everybody in the community, okay? And instead of being in lovely houses in the community, which is what everybody thinks, okay, it's going to happen. They're they sitting in tents. They never followed up with funding. The answer to that, so, we're running out of time, Judith, but the answer right. to that is. And they, right, and so they're sitting, the they're sitting in tents in right. the park, okay? And the intentions are, Judith Sherwin, we are out of time. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, our conservative Republican, Anthony Joel Posada, a Democrat, so, Democratic Socialist running for the Cook County Board. I'm Bruce Dumont, back with more discussion from the great state of El Paso, Texas, back shortly. this place gave me. We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom, having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oakbrook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Oh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. 
At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Mr. Montback, we continue with our program. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Anthony uh, Polk uh, joins us. He is now a uh, talk show host uh, for KTSM 690 in El Paso, Texas. And uh, uh, we have said uh, farewell to Judith Sherwin and to Anthony Joe Posada, uh, who cannot join us for this portion of the program. They have other places to go. But, Anthony, I want to come back to you uh, because you're there every single day as to what's happening in El Paso, and you've got... It covered like a blanket and have for many years. Uh, how has the city of El Paso dealt with the influx of people coming from uh, Mexico and other countries? And um, been pretty complex with the situation that's been evolving here over the past couple of weeks. Really, if you want to go back to it's the past few years, because the immigration situation and the response that's been required for it has been essentially an ongoing situation. It's just in the last couple of weeks here, as it's been reporting on nationally reached levels that have been near as we can figure nigh unprecedented for our area here is the best way to put it. There's always been some kind of low level, whether it be border crossings, whether it be asylum seekers, whether it be people seeking to have no interactions with authorities in any way and mm-hmm. just continue on their way. That's always been a factor here. And there's always been this uh, essentially both, microcosm of local nonprofits, NGOs that have kind of dealt with that, sometimes in coordination with both local, even then state and federal authorities here. But this is the point at which we are seeing that there has been an overwhelming of most of those systems we've already had now, in as, place. As far as, far as at least the, the, the national uh, promotional publicity on this, is that all this was going on at the local level, and there were complaints by some, mostly Republicans, mm-hmm that the people were being moved from uh, El Paso and other places in Texas. They were being moved in the middle of the night and sent to other cities around the United States where they were placed or dumped, or whatever the word is, transported, I guess is the best word to use. And that was the policy. Now, in the last 10 days, when uh, the governor of Texas and the governor of uh, of Arizona and also uh, Governor DeSantis decided that they were going to stick their two cents into it. Didn't they basically just uh, usurp the, the role of what was already being done, only they made it public that it was go- they were going to specific cities in the day as opposed to 
uh, putting them on a transport plane and sending them to, you know, upstate New York uh, in the middle of the night. That is essentially the new wrinkle here, but it's obviously been that whole circumstances, the busing you're talking about here yeah. has been going on. That's really the new wrinkle as of last year and into this year. I mean, there's been kind of the, the threats that uh, Governor Greg Abbott here in Texas have been making for a while, and we've seen other governors now doing similar things here. But again, to be honest with you, there had always been something kind of of that system going on here, but not to this order of magnitude here. It's been within these last couple of weeks that the city of El Paso itself here has been chartering its own buses out of here. Now, I do want to draw a distinction here because I was able to speak with uh, one of our deputy city managers here for the city of El Paso, Mario Diagostino, head of the city county department of emergency management, and made it clear to me that this is not part of Governor Greg Abbott's efforts, also known as Operation Lone Star, in which they are doing this busing that also involves some of the uh, Texas uh, State Guard mm-hmm. troops, those kind of things. So they have made it clear that this is these are separate things. But overall, yes, the city being involved, local government being involved in the charting of these buses, uh, sending them, my understanding is, primarily from here to New York. There was an attempt, essentially, at chartering a bus to Chicago. I don't believe that has happened again from just speaking about our local mm-hmm. efforts here in the borderland. But otherwise, yeah, that has been one of the new facets. To my understanding, we're in the order of dozens of buses have been chartered yeah. directly out of our area solely for this purpose. One of the criticisms uh, that have been leveled, that's been leveled by Republicans, uh, or leveled by Democrats, I should say, leveled by Democrats and uh, perpetuated by the media, is that the state of Texas... Uh, has not been communicated. They have been putting people on buses, uh, or Governor DeSantis in Florida put people on a plane, and he didn't let anyone know on the receiving end who was coming, when they were coming, what type of people were coming. Uh, is there is that true, or is that just uh, partisan uh, rhetoric at the moment? When it comes to the state-level response here, it's a little bit unclear as to exactly what has or hasn't been happening on the actual communication on the other end here. I mean, I know that it very much both in the statements that have been made about it and in the way that it's been received, it does seem that there's a little bit of a, a punitive nature of it here, particularly when we're talking about, I mean, again, speaking here in Texas with Governor Greg Abbott, making the political point was very much a focus for him. What I will say again, from the local efforts we're seeing here from the far west Texas region we're in, that there has been coordination of a level, essentially with other nonprofit organizations at the destinations, primarily in New York. A grandmother's response has been specifically cited as one of the organizations that has been getting uh, liaised with upon essentially the arrival of the buses to kind of the New York City, New York in general area. Yeah. I read a story recently. Uh, this was on Reuters. Uh, one of the leading news publications in the world, uh, they were telling a story. They were interviewing one of those uh, from, you know, one of the, uh, you know, uh, asylum seekers uh, who ended up in Chicago, uh, who had basically made the comment that uh, it was a surprise. He didn't know he was coming to Chicago. Promises were made. They were made by a woman. But then the reporter acknowledged uh, he didn't know the name of the woman. He didn't know the agency that she was with. And yet uh, this reporter was reporting that news. And certainly we've heard that news on the that story on the network news. But this is this is an unsubstantiated uh, report from someone that, that's an assign, you know, who's coming here as an asylum asylum. Uh, that may that may not be true at all. But again, it's being reported. I mean, mm-hmm. there was no, there was no 
you know, vouching for that story or not, but it's it's out there in the body politic that, uh, you know, this is all a surprise. I have heard that similar story. I have found that to be dubious nature for a variety of reasons. What, again, is being said here in the state of Texas, again, Governor Greg mm-hmm. Abbott has made it clear that this is being given as an option. To that, they want to get on these buses. They want to be transported here. They have the ability to say yes or no. Now, to be fair, in this circumstance, the other choice is you can either choose this or you can choose to go through deportation proceedings. So essentially, it's a question of if that is truly a choice or not, and whether uh, it's truly a you know I'll, I'll consider my full options kind of situation there. What I'll again further say here in the city of El Paso, the situation that we are dealing with and what we are seeing here is that again it's kind of a ramping up of efforts that had already been existing because even before buses were being chartered like this, the focus was always in the receiving of the response here of essentially when people were released from federal custody, there would be this handoff, this kind of handshake agreement with, again, the local nonprofit groups. And the local nonprofit groups, they were not necessarily seeking housing, local services, anything beyond a very temporary nature, kind of addressing immediate needs. But the focus was primarily to then how people move on to their final destination. It was never to remain here. So this essentially busing, but in a much minor scale, essentially we're talking like a ticket at a time off the local Greyhound was very much the focus and how those efforts had been previously. So again, just to make it clear, what I've been told by our again local government officials is that this is an extension of those efforts and not directly in coordination to some of those other governor's efforts that you mentioned. When we come back, I want to talk about how much of this uh, is, is confusion by design. And we'll do that with Andrew Pope, veteran talk show host from KTSM AM 690 in El Paso, Texas. He joins us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Back from All I have. This space gave me. We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom, having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oakbrook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. 
I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Bruce Dumont back. It's uh, nice to have you with us. Uh, I want to go back to uh, Andrew a little bit. Andrew, how much of the, uh, just the discussion, whether it's on talk radio, whether it's, you know, in the bars, in the barbershops, uh, is, has been made, that they've been able to delineate between those that are here illegally, who you know, snuck over the border, and those that are part of the uh, process of uh, asylum seekers, who technically are not lawbreakers. So that's an ongoing part of the conversation. So if you're asking how much that has taken up of time here, it's a significant portion because, yeah, if you want to get into some of the very technical, in fact, that's one of the questions that I asked, again, uh, some of the uh, city officials that have been stepping into this response recently because a comment was made during a recent, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a news conference to that effect about they are here legally, which was potentially very confusing to some people because, again, the way we talk about these things and the fact of that uh, asylum seeking, yes, is a legal process. There are these, of course, you know, very important treaties the U.S. has signed on to here, but also the fact that uh, the level, the amount that is being seen right now in our area, it's literally spilling into our streets. We have had uh, this kind of flux of uh, tent encampments along some of the downtown El Paso streets because of the severe influx we are seeing and some of the different changing parts of it. One of the things that I mentioned about how this has kind of always been going on at some level within the borderland, within my lifetime anyway, I can say that confidently, uh, it's always been people of either, you know, from Mexico or the nearby countries. The fact that we're seeing a large influx of, of Venezuelans at this point here who don't necessarily have been that point further on to journey to, don't have the existing contacts in town, this makes what's going on currently a little bit more closer to what we saw actually just about a year ago when we're talking about in like Del Rio and Eagle Pass when it was mm -hmm. similarly but different when there was, uh, say, with the Haitian situation going on there. What is the what is the reaction from the uh, council on the on the street? Are they are they tired of this issue? Uh, uh, are they uh, vehement against those that are coming to the country? Are they are they assimilating into the city structure of El Paso? How, how is the daily communication just between uh, the, the citizens of your city? I will say it's changing a bit now because again of this changing situation we're in in these last you know couple of weeks to a month here of what we've been seeing with this response 
El Pasoans, I want to say in general, not to necessarily speak for everyone uh, overall, but the sense that I get is that El Paso is seen as a pass-through, as something where, sure, there may be a lot of things. I mean, there's this general conception that things such as, you know, uh, drugs, money laundering, human smuggling, smuggling of all types certainly happens here. We have some very major ports of entry here, four major international bridges across the Rio Grande. And so it's we're not at all ignorant that this is happening here, but the general conception is here is that it just it comes through here and it just keeps on moving. That it doesn't stay here. The locus isn't here, but that has been changing. That conception over the last couple of years, because even when it comes to strictly illegal immigration being spoken about here, about people being smuggled across, people hoping to have no interaction with authorities, we have been having increasing instances of two specific ways. One is the stash houses. That is where people are being kept, and oftentimes it turns out that they're essentially being held ransom to the coyotes and to the cartels that brought them across saying, you paid your fee, but now we want more money than we told you about out of you. The second incident that has been coming more prevalent, and it even literally happened right across the street from our studios here on North Mesa, what's what's called the bailouts, where essentially that uh, a vehicle carrying you know those being smuggled is at all interacted by law enforcement, even just like a flashing lights pullover kind of thing. And so what will then happen in those circumstances is that the driver of the vehicle will essentially ditch the vehicle as soon as possible, either literally into a ditch or in a gaze in the case of a restaurant right across the street from us where I'm sitting right now, crashed into the building and everyone kind of scattered out of the vehicle, all ended up in that case being apprehended and some different immigration processes being done for those that were the passengers and a lot of criminal charges being faced by the driver of these and other vehicles similarly. And uh, how has the crime rate been affected by all this in the last five years? So El Paso, we have a phrase and uh, can point to certain things about being one of the safest large cities in the country here. Mm-hmm. And that has largely borne out here. We have seen a similar-ish to what's been being seen nationally when it comes to uh, you know the increase in some violent crimes, murders specifically. We can usually count murders in this city of you know roughly 600,000-plus people on you know uh, a hand or two. And that has been mm-hmm. out of the norm lately here. Linking that directly with situations like this, like, make no mistake, this is crime we are talking about particularly the human smuggling element of it, but in some of the kind of regular statistics that we think about, you know, whether it be property crimes, whether it be crimes against persons here, I'm honestly not sure if that's being calculated in the same kind of way with the rest of these or being kind of kept in a separate bucket, so to speak. Now, when when you're talking about, uh, you know, the the, the politics or the local politics of El Paso, uh, Mm. one of the big stories that people have been looking at politically this year is whether or not a large number of Hispanics in Texas are going to go over and switch and vote for a Republican. What, what can you tell us about sort of the body politic and are, are people holding the Biden administration responsible for this or are they throwing up their hands and say, listen, nobody can really uh, repair this situation? I think there is a lot of frustration on here, but it's very interesting that you mentioned there that, yeah, this whole concept of the blue wall, no pun intended towards the actual physical wall or border barrier that we have in a lot of places and have had for a long time here in El Paso. It was something that Governor Greg Abbott said specifically on one of his recent visits in the past few months to town he was here, is that is something they are targeting for this election. So it's one thing to say, you know, of course, intentions, and then what will actually be the reality of it. But Going further to the, your point about the immigration here, a lot of frustration, I will got to say here, about what has been seen as, and is very rightly, a federal responsibility that, sure, there may be some that argue that what the state is doing is interfering with that, again, with the whole Operation Lone Star. But the argument that is, and that I wonder if it's being increasingly accepted, is that it's necessary for there to be a response because 
the federal is lacking so much here. Uh, I mean, I have talked with Border Patrol agents, uh, with CBP officers, both on the official and kind of unofficial level, mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of people are interested in talking about this. I'll say, well, of my callers, yeah, there's a lot of fed upness with what this administration is or isn't doing. And I've called it out myself, frankly, because actual policy being done has been a little bit sparse here. We've had this kind of a multi-pillar announcement that came out of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, you know, Secretary Mayorkas on that issue. But actual like statements out of the White House has been feeling a little bit sparse in terms of addressing this. Now, Democrats and the national media have used the same word, political stunt, to describe what Governor Abbott is doing. are there is there any large number of people that you run into that believe that that's the, the right description of what Governor Abbott is doing? Or is he basically just saying, I want to provide some attention and focus and spotlight on other cities that should be doing more, especially those that purport to be sanctuary cities uh, with with welcoming arms? I I mean, I get it kind of both ways. I hear from both sides on that about that. Yeah, there is an element of political stunt here. And I mean, that was more or less the stated purpose when it comes to, again, speaking specifically of Texas Governor Greg Abbott and his saying that we want to make sure that the other areas of the country know about this, that he didn't exactly use the words feel the pain here, but the idea of letting them know exactly what the situations are and what it takes to deal with it is very much baked into it the way he has talked about it here. I will say that some say that, well, we're using essentially human lives to make a a political point here. And is that the right way to go about this? But I will say, I have expressed this on our air, and I've had more than a little bit of agreement from the, my listeners as well, about the, the response that we've heard about this from places like New York City, Chicago, and other cities and towns, and uh, D.C., about when we hear from like the mayors of those locations, say, how can we possibly be expected to deal with this? Kind of along those level of statements here, right. that that falls on very unsympathetic ears here in this region of the country where we have been dealing with this and continue to deal with this and it's kind of like a it's not a problem when it's over there but as soon as it's in our backyard it's kind of like an inverse nimby problem as long as it's not in my backyard it's fine but now that it's being brought to my backyard this is unconscionable and so when we start hearing about that i will also admit myself that i have a little bit of lack of sympathy when they're talking about how can we be expected to deal with this when that's pretty much a facet of everyday life and built into part of the existence here in our region anyway well, we just had in our last uh, half hour of the program, we just had a discussion of the, the 500 uh, uh, assignees that, that basically came here uh, primarily from Venezuela, and the city of Chicago couldn't deal with them, and so they passed them off to a suburban area. But uh, one of our conservative Republican guests is, well, how can you not deal with, with 500 people? That's that's not like 5,000 or you know a couple of million people that, that are pouring into Texas. Yeah, and even to put it further in perspective, what we're looking at here with, again, the Venezuelans and the other existing migration patterns, uh, what drove around yesterday, couldn't find any of the response going on late last night here, and it's been a pretty rainy day here in the borderland, so haven't seen much going on right now as of today, but... I will say I've previously seen when driving along, you know, we have highways that go right next to the border barriers in certain areas. And I've seen groups of people that were approaching them on the Mexican side of it and basically waiting to then present themselves to U.S. border authorities on that. But as it exists right now, that 500 number is very interesting because that 500 number is what we are seeing about per day in this area of those crossing, not even presenting themselves at mm-hmm. ports of entry, but crossing directly into the U.S. And essentially, they, the immediate thing they do is then try to find some kind of an official, whether it be Border Patrol, CBP, ICE, et cetera. 
Mm -hmm. And the, the support for the, the, the government agencies, is it still strong amongst the, the population there? It's always been kind of a split thing because of just, you know, when it comes to sentiments about immigration, the way we do with border security and such here. But I would say the sense that I get the most here and what I find myself talking the most about is how strained they are, how much strength there is on the average, you know, officers, officials, what have you, whether it be at the ports of entry or in between them here, that the lack of resources available to them here. And it's not simple to get more of these. You can't go out and you know, put up a help wanted sign here. I've actually been involved in some of the background investigations for these kind of federal mm -hmm. positions in the past year. And it is a year, if not multi-year process. So it's kind of a, well, where was this effort a couple of years ago kind of concern when it comes to actually be able to do this kind of work. Andrew Polk, we thank you very much. You, you provided a great deal of information in the last half hour. We appreciated Veteran Talk Show host for KTSM AM 690 in El Paso, Texas. When we come back, we'll talk about what's going on in Guatemala. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I think it's just vapor. Vaping is safer than smoking, isn't it? There's really not even that much nicotine in them, right? One vape pod has as much nicotine as one pack of cigarettes. My kid? My kid, My kid knows it's dangerous. 5.4 million American kids vape, and most think it's harmless. Get your head out of the cloud. Talk to your kid about vaping. Visit talkaboutvaping.org. That's talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, 
but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. To my back on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, we are now joined by uh, Steph Kite, and she is uh, with Axios. She's part of their political reporting team, and her expertise is in the area of immigration and also demographics. Steph, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway this evening. Uh, I read your article earlier this week about what the Biden administration is doing in uh, in, in Guatemala, and I'm wondering if you can kind of uh, share with our audience the role that Guatemala plays in this big picture that we're dealing with in the country, uh, they're pretty much at the apex of the problem, are they not? Yeah, I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala to see how the government works with local law enforcement there to crack down on human smuggling groups. So the, the people who take migrants and move them further north, of course, Guatemala, where it's situated um, right below Mexico, is a key transit country for migrants and asylum seekers who are heading towards the U.S. Um, For a long time, Guatemala has been one of the primary home countries of migrants and asylum seekers who arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, making up large percentages of the total numbers who arrived every year. But one thing that's interesting is that over the past year or two, we've seen a shift in the demographics of people who are coming to our border. Um, We're seeing more and more people coming from further south in South America and transiting through Guatemala. So not only is Guatemala a country where people are fleeing from to go to the U.S., we're also seeing them increasingly becoming a transit country where people from other countries are traveling through and using um, smugglers to um, help them move through, move through Mexico to the U.S.-Mexico border. So for all of those reasons, Guatemala is a really interesting country to to look at and to see how the administration is using multiple different ways of trying to slow down the number of people arriving at the U.S. border. When, When you look at what might encourage someone to come to the United States, uh, and either go through the the process of asylum or to try to sneak in the country in a, in a less uh, legal way, prescribed way, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been obviously in the political debate between the two parties. Uh, the Republicans say that the Democrats and, and President Biden, it's an open gate. They're just, it's just, it's just, uh, come on, come on, come on, come on. No matter what they say, their policies are encouraging people to come. Whereas the, uh, the the Trump at least rhetoric suggested, uh, no, don't don't come here because we're going to make uh, life difficult for you. Is it is that still going on? I mean, are, are are at the local level, are people still looking at the politics of this, pointing fingers at the other side as to who is who is encouraging people to come and who is discouraging people to come? 
Yeah, of course, when it comes to immigration, it's become a very hotly debated political issue in the states. And, you know, to your point, we see Republicans and Democrats stressing um, different reasons for why people are coming to the board. You know, if you talk to Republicans, as you pointed out, they typically focus on the domestic U.S. policies at the border. They focus on the need for, you know, more border security. Building um, the wall was, of course, President Trump's big promise, and that was his focus. They focus on asylum policies making it more difficult for people to get asylum or making sure that people are quickly removed, those kinds of issues. Whereas when you talk to Democrats and what we've heard a lot from the Biden administration is they really tend to focus on what we call the push factors, the issues in the home countries that push people to leave. So you're talking about economic poverty, economic problems, um, you know, political corruption, um, gang violence, all of these reasons that convince people to leave. And, you know, when you look at it, both factors matter. There are reasons why people are trying to leave their home country. And oftentimes people are leaving devastating situations at home. You know, you hear stories from migrants whose family members were killed by gang members um, or who really struggle to make make ends meet. And so that's pushing them to leave. But there is something to the U.S. Mm -hmm. policies as well, creating loopholes and drawing people to the U.S. in particular. And messaging does matter. In, in Guatemala, which is the area where you have focused in this recent story, um, if, if authorities in Guatemala find out that a family or a group of people are trying to get the United States, or they discover a smuggling ring that's you know, taking four or 500 people out of their country, do they try to stop them or are they just glad to have them go? Well, the group that I that I spoke with, the group of law enforcement that the U.S. backs, they their whole role is to stop human smuggling networks like that. They work on other issues as well, including drug trafficking and human trafficking. Um, and, you know, visa fraud issues are not, is another issue that they focus on. I, I actually witnessed um, a raid of someone in Guatemala who was suspected of creating false U.S. visas. Um, but yes, of course, if they come across a human smuggling ring, if they complete their investigation and find those people, they will arrest them. And, you know, we've actually seen under the Biden administration for the first time, there are four Guatemalans facing extradition to the U.S. to face charges for human smuggling. And this is really a historic effort and shows that the Biden administration is wanting to show that they take very seriously human trafficking, so much so that they're not only going to make these smugglers face um, the Guatemalan justice system, but they're also willing to bring them to the U.S. for prosecution as well. And this is called the TCIU. It's the Transactional yeah, the Transnational Criminal Investigative Criminal Units are the units of foreign law enforcement that the U.S. carefully vets so that they'll choose very carefully which members of the, the foreign law enforcement groups they want to work with. They vet them, they polygraph them, then they actually bring them to the U.S. for training for three weeks, and then they work very closely with U.S. agents on the ground in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And when we've talked about this for, it seems like I've been talking about it for half of my life, um, corruption in those countries is widespread. To what extent is the corruption, at least in Guatemala, which is where you focused, mm -hmm. is, it, um, is it tied to the president? Is there anything that the United States, I know the vice president was down there, she's in charge of trying to clear this thing up. I mean, are they looking to shake down the United States for more money? I mean, what's happening in the conversations between 
you know, a major player within the administration and uh, in the Guatemalan government. Yeah, corruption. <laughs> yeah, corruption is a huge issue in Guatemala, of course. And, you know, it's interesting. I spoke to both U.S. officials and Guatemalan officials who spoke to this issue and how it really is a careful dance between needing Guatemala to work with us on issues like human smuggling. And, and Guatemala has been very willing to work on that issue with the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the U.S. is grateful for that. But at the same time, there have been very serious accusations of corruption. Um, even the U.S., um, you know, has even called out the attorney general of Guatemala for issues there for her actions that have been very questionable um, going after critics of this current Guatemalan administration. So there is definitely um, concern there. But when it comes to the efforts on the ground to fight crime, fight these human smuggling networks, at least so far, um, they've been able to kind of keep keep separation between the officials high up who are at most risk of corruption. But, you know, even on the local police level, corruption has been an issue. And I spoke with people who who told me how that's been difficult. And if you know, they have to be very careful in which police officers they decide to work with on the ground to ensure that they're people we can trust. If there's a Guatemalan family that wants to come to the United States, how do they hear about the smugglers? Is it, is it word of mouth? Do the local police authorities point them in the right direction? I mean, how is how does that happen? And, and how does the discussion of money uh, come up to get a family out of Guatemala? Yeah, you know, you know, in some ways we don't know a lot about how these networks work because they are so undercover and very spread out, but word of mouth is a huge one. Um, lots of people know someone who has already made the voyage to the U.S.-Mexico border, and so they'll ask them or their family members, like, who did you use to get to the U.S.-Mexico border? So that's a huge factor in this. Also, we've seen increasingly these smuggling networks turn to social media using Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups to kind of reach out to different people interested in moving north so that's been a huge factor. I, you know, I spoke to people who have been tracking these groups for a while, and they they told me that it's difficult for law enforcement to keep up because smuggling networks are so um, easily, they can easily change direction. One thing that they brought up is they've recently begun using the Uber app or ride sharing apps um, as ways to more easily transport people from one part of Guatemala to the other or across the Mexico border. So they're definitely using many different tactics to get the word out. And how much do they pay? What's, what's yeah. the going rate to smuggle a family for out of Guatemala? You know, it can be as much as $10,000 a head. It depends on, you know, how many people, but it's thousands of dollars per person for the most part. And, you know, some smugglers um, are more care more about their the people's safety. And, you know, the other side of this is that these smugglers have very little incentive to actually keep people safe on their journey north. And we've seen that one of the most deadly years at the U.S.-Mexico border with many migrants dying um, along the border. And so, you know, not only do we want people to come to the U.S. through legal mechanisms, we also want to ensure that desperate people are not taken advantage of and even die trying to find a better life for themselves. Is Guatemala exporting drugs or uh, is it more human trafficking or is it a little bit of both? Um, it's definitely both. We see Guatemala as the source and also the transit country for, for drug trafficking and human trafficking. And 
you know, the TCIUs work on both of those issues and they have created actually very effective means of tracking and stopping the, the drug trafficking um, that comes through and over Guatemala in planes. I heard a lot about kind of how they've uh, created a system to better uh, stop the drug trafficking in addition to human smuggling. And they deal both with human smuggling, which is when migrants, you know, ask to be taken to the U.S.-Mexico border or ask to be taken to Mexico, as well as human trafficking when people are taken against their will by people who are who are forcing them into, you know, labor trafficking or sex trafficking situations. Steph Kite is our guest. She is a veteran reporter for Axios. She covers uh, immigration. Her story this past week was on what's happening in Guatemala. We will continue that discussion, 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. This space gave me. We have never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed their basic freedom, having that taken away from them. I watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident. I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man in jail in the world. The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Get an exclusive sneak preview of this new documentary feature film in Chicago on September 27th and Oak Brook on September 28th. Get your tickets now at thehongkongermovie.com. That's thehongkongermovie.com. I owe freedom my life. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening. And they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more. 
that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. Uh, Steph Knight joins us. She is with Axios. And uh, uh, Steph, uh, you know, the, the, the picture that obviously is painted is, uh, is sort of a bleak one when we look at the totality of uh, the role of Central American governments and, and having people from that region of the world, you know, flood the United States. Uh, but uh, Guatemala is actually one of the better, uh, cooper- most cooperative countries down there is that correct it is yeah when you're especially when you're looking at you know the northern triangle countries of guatemala honduras and el salvador guatemala really has been one of the more cooperative countries with the u.s when it comes to to working on migration issues guatemala as well as mexico has also of course been an important partner for the u.s who's the who are the least cooperative countries do you know that um, well, of course, countries like Venezuela do not cooperate with us. Cuba, Nicaragua, those are countries where it is particularly difficult for the U.S. to work with, so much so that those countries often make it difficult, if not impossible, for the U.S. to deport nationals from those countries back to their home countries when they do not qualify for asylum or other statuses in the U.S. And that's actually been increasingly a problem um, at the U.S.-Mexico border as these nationalities have been um, showing up in higher and higher numbers. And so we let them in. They're allowed to pursue asylum cases. But if they do not get asylum, it's very difficult for the U.S. to deport them because those countries refuse to comply. But but smuggling, uh, the basis of your story was that smuggling in Guatemala is taken more seriously now, and it's being taken more seriously because it's being pressed by the by the Biden administration as they look out for some success stories. This is the closest thing to a success story that they have insofar as prosecution of smugglers. Well, I would say that when you look at the the program in Guatemala, the the Transnational Criminal Investigative Unit, which I um, embedded with and watched how they work, this has been actually working on these issues for um, multiple administrations. It's one area where we actually see um, some bipartisan agreement that, of course, we want to stop the the criminals who are taking advantage of desperate people and moving them toward the U.S.-Mexico Border. So, you know, we've actually seen this under the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. But we have seen the Biden administration recently um, send additional U.S. officials to these groups to add um, more people who can work on these issues, especially as we've seen the numbers at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, go so high in an anticipation of the end of um, mm-hmm. one of the COVID era policies known as Title 42. One of the concerns that uh, expressed by Republicans and some in the media is that all those who are coming into the United States from Central America, uh, when and if they ever become citizens, they're going to remember uh, maybe one party over the other. And they may remember that the Democratic Party was more supportive of them, at least that may be a perception they have, and that they will all vote Democratic in the future. Uh, I guess... I would argue is that if you're coming from Venezuela and you're fleeing Venezuela, and I guess there's like 6 million people that have 
fled Venezuela since 2014, uh, you're fleeing uh, Hugo Chavez, and the last thing you're going to likely be is is a Democrat or a Democrat socialist if you make it to the United States. You may be more Republican. Yeah, it's actually a very interesting. Uh, we're, we're actually watching very closely the Hispanic vote in the U.S., and that, of course, includes recent immigrants. And, you know, historically, we have seen that Latino voters tend to vote for Democrats over Republicans, especially when they have more recently arrived in the U.S., if they've come from um, immigrated more recently. But that's mm -hmm. not always the case. And we have seen shifts in that demographic that are pretty significant. And it often depends on, on where people are coming from. Of course, we all know that Cubans in Florida tend to be more Republican voters over Democrats. Democrats. We've seen in South Texas um, that voters there who are Hispanic have shifted to voting more Republican yep. than they have in the past. And so I think it's a very interesting demographic. And of course, immigration plays a big role in this, but it's really hard to know exactly how people are going to end up voting. And that will change over time as the parties change and as people's um, expression of who they are and how um, the immigration experience and the Latino experience changes in the U.S. Uh have, have we passed the point where people who really want to, who are looking at this issue, maybe from 30,000 feet or higher, uh, can, can avoid the, 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 I guess the question is, the, the reason that we're getting all these drugs from Central America and Mexico is that America is a drug culture. We, we, we're hooked on drugs, and uh, we don't seem to have any evidence that this country is going to break its drug habit. I mean, did the movers and shakers down there ever talk at that level about that we are the we, the United States, the citizens of the United States, we help create and help perpetuate this problem? I mean, well, of course, you know, smuggling networks, trafficking networks are responding to a demand for some of these substances, and that's, you know, probably never going to go away completely. One interesting um, fact that I saw recently was that actually the, the legalization of marijuana has actually seemed to have a counterintuitive impact on the amount of marijuana we've seen coming across the U.S.-Mexico border and actually indicted. So it's obviously a very complicated issue where, you know, there is going to be a demand, but there also is... Um, you know, the supply networks and traffickers and smugglers who still, you know, should be held accountable for their role in this. But, you know, to your point, um, they're only coming to the U.S. because there are people willing to buy what they have to sell. Mm -hmm. And from a democratic, uh, uh, from a demographic uh, perspective, as I mentioned, you one of, that's one of your areas of expertise. What is the big uh, demographic issue that uh, you think we should take into consideration when we're looking at the totality of immigration as you see it. Got 30 seconds. You know, well, one, one thing that I would say is that we have seen birth rates declining in the U.S. and in other wealthy nations as well. And, you know, immigration is going to play an important role in our ability to continue being a strong economic powerhouse in the U.S. and that immigrants do offer services that are needed by our economy. Um, and so it's a complicated issue and it's a system that is broken. Jeff, on that, on that point, I've got to interrupt you and say thank you very much for sharing all of your reporting and your expertise with us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont. and thanks to Fritz Coleman for assistance in the production of this program. Good night from Chicago.
back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. 